welcome in. Good to have you. Happy Wednesday. We we have uh, another jam packed show today, and we've got a little bit of a we got a little bit of everything for you. We're talking about rigged elections, everything from the cost of a Michigan championship game ticket. Uh, Brian, um, uh, I don't know if you have seen these ticket prices, uh, but they are astronomical. I haven't seen the sports ticket prices. I have seen ticket prices for other events, which are also astronomical. Mm-mm. It's, it's this insane. championship game ticket. Oh, Michigan, I, uh, Washington, can in I Houston. Guess? Can I guess? You could guess twenty five hundred per seat. Uh, if you could find that, I might buy it. <laughs> like, really? They are very expensive. I can imagine. Very expensive. But, and and look, it, it's not uncommon, but we haven't had a team in this situation in quite some time, at least in the last, you know, since 1997. And the economics of it all have changed drastically. What so, is face value as opposed to what are people getting? For? Well, it, it is different. Yes, that's a that is a valid question. And depending on where you get it through, like if yeah. you get it through the universities, generally it's a little cheaper. So like mm-hmm. season ticket holders will get first crack at it and sure. which they should. And and they should. Um but but there there are a lot of factors. Oh, and by the way, flights are still, you know, twenty two hundred right. bucks. So what I are mean, ticket prices? You haven't told me. What are they getting? We'll get to it. Oh, okay. <laughs> with Steve Courtney a little a little mm-hmm. later. Oh. But they're they're very expensive, and and you're in the ballpark. I'll put it that way. Wow. All right, you're 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 you are probably in, in the nosebleeds. You are right? in range. <laughs> you are in range. But I mean, you're you're looking at you could easily spend six six thousand dollars a person oh, on yeah. airfare and tickets alone. That's not food. That's not a hotel room. Right. I mean, it, it, it is it is an unbelievable number. And look, if you've got it and right. you wanna and 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 this is a this is a a bucket list. And you know Michigan isn't there very often. Um, then you do it. You make the memories, and and you you bite the bullet. Sure, if you can afford it. If you not? can afford it, absolutely. Um, if you have to, you know, think about, uh, you know, w- w- dipping into a savings account or cashing in a four hundred one k or uh, crossing your fingers if the lottery ticket's going to hit, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I, I would I would rethink it. it but we'll we'll get to it. Because it is it is a pretty unbelievable number. Uh, in the meantime, something interesting was happening uh, not only here in the state of Michigan but around the country today. The Michigan Capitol was evacuated earlier due to safety and security concerns after a bomb threat was received via email at the building. The Detroit News reports that the email threat was sent around seven forty-five this morning to the Michigan State Capitol Commission's general account. State police evacuated the building just after 10 o'clock. Now, after the Capitol was evacuated, the building was searched by police at around noon. Just a couple of hours ago, state police troopers were still using uh, bomb sniffing dogs to sweep the building out of an abundance of caution. Um, But as a result, the the Capitol was closed down for the rest of the day. Not a huge deal. Lawmakers aren't expected to be back in the building till till the 10th. But interestingly, interestingly enough, Around the country, bomb threats were made at five other state capitals, including Connecticut, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Montana. In Connecticut, Georgia, and Kentucky, the bomb threats were also made via email. In Mississippi, 
Some people reported some suspicious activity in and outside the the Capitol building. Now, it's still unclear how all of these cases are connected, if they are connected at all. But, I mean, you look at the calendar, we're we're three days out from January 6th, the two-year mark of, of January 6th. So I have a hard time thinking that this is just a coincidence. I have a hard time thinking that, you know, five, six random people uh, decided to call in bomb threats or send in email threats to to uh, their their capital uh, coincidentally on the same morning. Um, it, it would lead me to believe that this is somehow connected. Uh, there hasn't been any uh, validity to these threats, especially after police uh, uh, searched and, and did their due diligence. But I, I have a hard time thinking this is all just a coincidence. Meanwhile, the release of some more than 150 names mentioned in court documents from a civil case filed by one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims could come at any point today on a rolling basis. A judge has delayed the unsealing of three of the Jane Doe's in this lawsuit until the 22nd, but the rest of the names will be unsealed starting today. That's according to News Nation. Now, the delay for some of these names comes after a judge granted a 30-day extension to a Jane Doe to consider her appeal to remain confidential. These documents that will be made available to the public uh, come from a settled civil lawsuit. Virginia Guilfrey, she filed against uh, Jelaine Maxwell in 2015. Of course, Maxwell was a uh, confidant of Jeffrey Epstein. She was a British socialite. And the Miami Herald, uh, all this time, has been fighting to unseal these documents since 2018. So... Who's expected to be on this list? Well, Prince Andrew is expected to be on this list. That's not necessarily a surprise. Uh, Guffrey did say that she met former President Bill Clinton on Epstein's Island, but she did stop short of accusing him of any wrongdoing while he was there. Uh, Just a few years ago, 2019, the Clinton's office released a statement saying that the former president knows nothing about the terrible crimes Jeffrey Epstein pleaded guilty to in Florida years ago. And for those which he has recently been charged with in New York, Uh, the reports also say that Clinton did fly on Epstein's plane, but he had not spoken to Epstein in well over a decade. Of course, Epstein was found dead in prison. Uh, Conspiracy theorists believe that Epstein was murdered, uh, while uh, the official autopsy report said that it was a suicide attempt. Um. And so we will continue to watch for that as we the, the, the drip comes through. We'll continue to, to monitor that for you. Meanwhile, about 3,000 Michigan residents who were wrongly accused of defrauding the Michigan Unemployment Insurance Agency almost a decade ago will each be getting an average of 1600 bucks following the settlement of a class action lawsuit. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us to explain how all this started with a simple computer error. Hi, Marie that we have here, Chris, this lawsuit, uh, Bosserman versus Michigan Unemployment Agency is awaiting a judge's approval, which should come later this month. It was filed back in 2015 after nearly 40,000 residents were accused of fraud by a state computer system that operated without human supervision 
and had an error rate as high as 93%. The lawsuit settlement of $20 million was approved by the state's court of claims. That was a year ago. The computer system was called the Michigan Integrated Data Automated System, and it was implemented by former Governor Rick Snyder. It was supposed to speed things along and be more efficient. Claimants were given quadruple penalties, though, and subjected to aggressive collection techniques. Many had their wages garnished, and some had their income tax refunds seized, and some people even had to file for personal bankruptcy because of this mistake. Multiple lawsuits have been filed uh, against the state's UIA system uh, because of this. Some of the claimants were awarded extra money, as high as $4,000, a little more than that, in fact. And they'll get it after this settlement is approved. The attorneys representing these plaintiffs are getting about $6.6 million. One of the reasons not all 40,000 claimants are included in the class action list is because the Michigan Supreme Court decided that they had to limit who could sue based on timing. So that's why you're not hearing that all 40,000 of these people are going to get the money. Uh, One last thing, Chris, there will be a fairness hearing on January 29th in the Michigan Court of Claims. This is where members of the class can voice their support or their opposition to this settlement. So where does this money then come from? Uh, and does this does this impact the state's ability to pay unemployment? Oh, no. This, I mean, this comes from, yeah, this comes from the states. I believe it comes from maybe the general fund even. So it that's how they pay this out. Um, there are, and, and insurance, of course, too. Mm-hmm. You know, the state is insured against some of these things like this. Uh, but the question here is, is $1,600 enough for what these does people it, have gone through. Does it through. cover what they lost? Oh, yeah. They, I mean, some that, of them lost their reputations. Yeah, that it, it seems that six, while, while you look at the number and say 1600 bucks, good, um, I, I, I have a hard time believing that's going to cover all the costs that, that these people right. incurred. And the state is not using this uh, particular system anymore, thank goodness, because yeah. it had, as we said, a 93% error rate. Yikes. Yikes. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we got to take a break. Coming up next, the person who was tasked by Donald Trump's campaign following the 2020 election to find voter fraud joins us next. He says he found none of it. That's coming up in JR Afternoon. So the day after the 2020 presidential election, Donald Trump's campaign hired an expert in voter data to attempt to prove that the election was indeed stolen. The expert that the Trump campaign had hired was Ken Block. Now, Ken Block is the founder of Simpatico Software Systems, and the in-depth analysis that he and his team did was also highlighted in the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Those transcripts show that the campaign found no evidence of voter fraud, but Donald Trump continued to say that the election was stolen. The findings also were subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith and his investigation. Uh, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney down in Georgia, in her investigation. And Ken Block wrote an op-ed in USA Today yesterday. And... It was a very interesting, almost brief look at what Ken Block has has gone through over the last 
number of years from the allegations of election fraud to to now not finding anything. And Ken Block joins us this afternoon on WJR. Ken, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So talk to me a little bit about about going back to 2020 when when you were hired. What was that process like? It, it was from out of the blue. I uh, was literally sitting on the back deck with my family. My cell phone rang from a number in D.C. that I didn't recognize. It was one of the uh, top campaign lawyers for the Trump campaign. And when I say top campaign lawyer, I, I'm not talking about Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and, and folks like that. They were separate and apart from the actual campaign apparatus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically asked me if I would uh, be interested in looking for fraud for the campaign. And uh, in no way did I ever think that taking on that gig would uh, lead to where I'm uh, talking to you on the phone about it right now. It's been a pretty wild couple of years. So talk to me about what you did find. So um, it's, we're a little bit out ahead of when the book's coming. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it high level as opposed to really detailed right now. Okay. But I was asked to look for evidence of deceased voters. I was asked to look for evidence of people who voted twice. Um, and then what wasn't part of the contract, but what they, became, what they very quickly relied upon me to do was evaluate claims of fraud that others made that had come to the attention of the campaign legal team. And uh, I was asked to evaluate probably about 15 of those claims. And some of those claims were just some of the most bonkers things I've ever encountered in my life. And I was given usually 24 hours to assess the claim and try to figure out if it was uh, true or if it was uh, false, because within the, that month of November, you only have a few weeks from the election night in which you can contest the election results before the votes are certified. Mm-hmm. It's a very small window. So all of the work that I did came to me as a, an emergency crisis. You got to tell us right away whether this is good or bad because someone's waiting to file a lawsuit, about mm. it, basically. You, you did highlight uh, in your USA Today piece that there there were instances of fraud on both sides of the political aisle, Republicans and Democrats. You talked about those that had maybe two different residents or different homes were able to double dip in some cases. There were small numbers of, of deceased voters, but these levels of fraud didn't at all escalate to the levels of widespread voter fraud that would that would warrant uh, a 180 on the results of the the 2020 presidential election. You also talked about something else that I thought was quite interesting, and that was the the, the legal hurdles that you had to find in in your in your evidence uh, gathering that you had to find in order to overturn the election. And that is that if it was even shown that there were fraudulent votes cast in in a particular state, that it would be almost impossible to determine which candidate benefited from those fraudulent votes. I, I, explain to me a little bit about that process in terms of uh, of the fact-finding and gathering that you went through, but then the, the the legal bar that you had to be able to clear, which which you obviously weren't able to clear. 
Right. Well, and, and to, be, to be just really crystal clear about things, we never cleared the first bar that you were discussing, which was enough fraud to matter. Uh, that way, and we didn't have to get to the second bar, which was how do you prove that the Trump campaign was harmed by the fraud? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the, in the search for fraud, yeah, we found some uh, literally dead voters. And uh, in Pennsylvania, if you Google dead voters in 2020, you're going to find a couple that were convicted. And interestingly, the, the, the two convictions that I'm aware of were both Republicans who admitted that they had cast votes in dead relatives' names on beha- uh, for uh, President Trump. Mm. And the only way you know how someone has voted in our election system is if that person chooses to tell you. We vote anonymously, right? So when you go into the voting booth, it's nobody's business who you choose to vote for, and nobody has any legal right to know who you voted for uh, unless you've been all jammed up and got into legal trouble for some form of voter fraud, and then as part of your uh, sentencing, you have to cough up what you did. So uh, we found small amounts of fraud, not in any of the swing states that we all know by heart. Uh, not one state had enough voter fraud in it or even close to enough voter fraud in it to have met the first bar, which was enough fraud to matter. So whether it was Georgia with roughly 12,000 votes or Arizona with roughly 10,000 votes, we didn't find anywhere close to those numbers in terms of documentable, verifiable fraud uh, so that you could even begin to contemplate a legal challenge. And, and so your, your your work was also was also uh, 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 garnered and or, or or brought in by the January sixth committee in the House that was looking at at the case, uh, and then also Jack Smith, Fannie Willis are all taking a look at this too. Uh, Ken, I, I'd love to have you back on. I, I do know you have a book coming back uh, or, or coming out shortly, um, so let's stay in touch. And I'd love to have you back on. We'll, we'll chat about the book as well. Love to do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, Ken Block, uh, thank you for your time as always. We'll talk again very soon. Ken Block, uh, the founder of Simpatico Software Systems, he was looking for voter fraud, was tasked uh, with that by the President Trump campaign in 2020, and he found not a whole lot of it. Continue on here on JR Afternoon. What is it? January 3rd, which means you probably are still on track with your New Year's resolutions. And, you know, I, it, it feels like over, I mean, I don't know, the, the last 20, 30 years, New Year's resolutions have become so heavy, like like the, the, the goals are so lofty and people really want to stick to them. But it's difficult once you get past that New Year's Eve, that that New Year's glow and you get really back into the swing of things, life kicks in. And it's very difficult for people to hold on to those New Year's resolutions, whether you're trying to, you know, kick, kick a, a habit like smoking, whether you're trying to lose weight, eating better, exercising more, whatever it is. The, the, it is it is incredibly difficult uh, to to stick with with a lot of these resolutions. And I was kind of wondered why. Well, now we have somebody who at least can provide some clarity on it. Dr. Caroline Leaf is a clinical and cognitive neuroscientist and joins us to help uh, to, to help try to keep you on track. Doc, good to have you. 
Hi, lovely to be with you. Talk to me about why it's so difficult for people to keep keep their New Year's resolutions on track as they get into February, March, April. It's, Chris, there's a couple of 